Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am so pleased that I am back here on a Sunday evening. Oh, it's unbelievable the amount of people who are lining up to be my guests. It's as if like I've got all my opposition people that I'm lining up and I'm firing the squad. It gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce you to this, uh, you know, comic that I have known for well over, I would say 11, 12 years. 12 years. I have known Nabil Abdul Rashid for at least 12 years. And I'm trying to remember how we met. Uh, maybe he can remember. Yes, I remember there was a gig somewhere in South London. And uh, this was before I became a military president. I was a civilian president. You know, say I have, I have a history and I was a civilian president. And it happened to be one, I can't remember who did the gig. It was a, it was a black gig. And I saw this big black man. <laughs> Looked literally scary, like a bouncer. And you <laughs> there was Nabil, there was Latif Lovejoy. And yes, and I just saw this guy. And he was so, you know, I even tried to say hello or anything, just looked at me like, who the hell are you? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I must have been Latif, not me, man. No, no, no. <laughs> And, you know, and we kept in touch ever since. We've, you know, at times we do gigs together, at times we talk. But look, I, he's my brother. He is my brother for a number of reasons. One, I am just so pleased, and I genuinely mean it, pleased with his recent success. Nabil Abdul Rashid, BGT, finalist. You know, people have to remind me that he didn't actually win the competition. Because every time I see him, I actually think he actually won. He took, he, look, I was so pleased. I sat down with my, with my wife while we were watching him on BGT uh, final. So, you know, with no further ado, I'm sure he's well known. He's, he's a great comic. I want to get to understand Nabil because we've never really had, you know, we do some banter jokes and we talk, but I genuinely want to understand. I know his father is a, a, a retired medical doctor. I know he's from Nigeria, Northern Nigeria. And it's very unusual, you know, certainly during my generation, for you to wake up one morning and say that you want to be a comedian. You know, privately educated, I would have thought that he would have been a doctor or lawyer or, you know, or, you know, something professional. Why comedian? Comedian. You know, <laughs> <laughs> comedian in Nigeria. I can hear the Nigerian father, you got just why? 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 I, I said, are you on drugs? Why? You? <laughs> so I want to delve into that because you know, why? why? Let's start with that, Nabil. Why stand up comedy? So I've sat down recently and I've been trying to retrace a lot of stuff about my childhood and whatnot. And my earliest and oldest memory from childhood was watching stand up comedy videos of Richard Pryor. And uh, what did be that guy named? Seth? I'm sorry, what's that guy's name? Uh, Rowan Atkinson. He had a one one man show, our mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. We had both on VHS, and we had Eddie Murphy's Delirious on VHS. And I remember watching them as a kid with my older brother, who was much older than me. Like he'd be watching it, and I was just in the room, and there was just something amazing. This was in Nigeria. There was something amazing and powerful of seeing, you know, about seeing these men on stage 
commanding these audiences and, and, and talking about real stuff, like real personal social issues, political stuff, but they weren't, commi- they weren't like politicians because they were having fun with it. There was such something that drew me to that. And, you know, I've always been a natural performer since I was a kid. But it never occurred to me that I could become a stand-up comic because even the basket mouth and people like that only really started coming into the forefront later in in my life when I was a teenager. And even as a teenager um, in secondary school, like I was a star basketball player, I was on the debate team, and my style of debating was funny. Right, I used to mock my opponent's points, and so it sounds like I was training from there. And like also. I wouldn't say class clown. I was a bit of a bad boy. Like, in the, I was intelligent. I did well. I got good grades, but I got bored. Like, if you were a teacher that I didn't like, I would find ways to disrupt your class so you would kick me out. Right? <laughs> so, and I was really good at imitating my teachers. I had a knack for impressions. And as you know, Nigeria is a tribal country. So, Hausa, Igbo, Yoruba, Fulani, Bibio, Efik, Ijo, all these different tribes. Mm-hmm. So, all the teachers had different accents and different mannerisms and they all came from different because like it, you know private school even in nigeria we had foreign teachers as well like in primary school even we had teachers from all over the world so i was exposed to all these cultures from early like i remember being the only black kid in my class in nigeria in primary school as a student wow you know i remember that aisha Mohammed international school everybody was from holland israel america portugal like that so i was constantly surrounded by different voices and different uh, accents and different things so it was just something that all of this stuff was like a training ground for comedy and also you see like my house was deeply political political banter was something that we were exposed to from a young age because my dad used to read a lot of political cartoons in the newspapers like guardian and punch in nigeria you know, and my dad grew up in, well, not grew up, he studied medicine in the Soviet Union in Russia. Mm-hmm. So we were always exposed to all these political ideas and almost this Marxist disposition of challenging authority. And growing up, I grew up in Sanya Abacha's regime in northern mm-hmm. Nigeria. You know, I grew up <laughs> around that time. Most of my friends, uh, their parents were military uh, personnel during the regime, the military rule mm-hmm. of Nigeria. So there was a lot of conversation around politics and challenging rulers through entertainment, even if it was on a low level Mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And all of this stuff kind of was the training ground to form the mind that I have now about comedy. Even like I remember writing jokes I would use to annoy teachers the next day (laughs) in school. You know, so it's like, (laughs) so from early, you know, I just developed this showman showmanship from a young age but comedy the actual so that's what made me probably subconsciously want to be a comedian the mechanics of me becoming a comedian later in life though were all coincidental and circumstantial but we'll get to that (laughs) we'll get to that yeah you you know you mentioned uh basket mouth or you mentioned before basket mouth Mm -hmm. you mentioned um richard pryor uh, certainly, yeah. you know, I'm obviously much older than you, but my, Only slightly. I was <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't privileged to watch uh, I didn't even know who Richard Pryor was until I got here. So can mm. you can you think of the 
sort of uh, comedy I was watching back in my days. It was uh, Baba Salah. Uh, I don't know if you know Baba Salah. You know, Baba Jasko. Like, Baba Jasko. Uh, <laughs> wait for for my listeners. My head, my head, my, my, yeah, the Benny Hill, the, the Benny Hill of Nigerian version. You know, but they were funny. You know, they were really yeah, funny. They were, funny. Like, they were really funny comedy sketches. Jaguar. Jaguar. Yeah. And then yeah, talk, I grew up on that stuff too, man. Yeah, and then you when know? you talk of uh subconscious things, uh people don't understand when, when when I dress like this, this is how I see leadership. I don't see I don't see civilian leadership. I I grew up under the likes of Abacha, Babangi, Dago One. Just yep. like by the time I left Nigeria, yep. yeah, yeah. It was all military governments. Yep. So then you understand the importance of self-expression yeah. uh, during times. And, and that's why when I look at these English people now mm -hmm. with the current situation that they have with their current president, I'm like, you guys haven't seen, I say president, prime minister. I'm like, these mm -hmm. guys haven't seen anything. This is all fun and games. Mm -hmm. Like, have you seen what a, what a minigun attached to the top of an armored tank does to a human body? Mm -hmm. I saw that, bro. I mm -hmm. saw political violence. I saw all these things. So I think the, a lot of this stuff is why I've become the comedian that I am. And, mm. you know, again, I don't want, I'll, I'll get into my mentality and all that stuff. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I know philosophy. It. Yeah, I want to know how your parents felt when you told them you you wanted, because you obviously have a degree. Did you, you feel, yeah? Yeah, so well, you got a degree in what? I've got one in psychology, I one in drama and applied theater. Okay, and after that, you just decided to do stand-up comedy. Well, yeah, and focus on that. What did your father say? I mean, so you have to understand that when I first came to the UK, I was a teenager, and I was a troubled teenager. You know, I, I came here, like, this is a problem. A lot of Nigerians send their kids to England and don't think about the neighborhood they're sending them to or the people that they're going to go and live with. And, you know, let's just say I was in a situation where it's either you become a wolf or you become a sheep and you know me well so you can imagine the choice i chose mm -hmm. especially then as a young man with nothing to lose as a, a teenager so i got into a bit of trouble when i was younger you know without getting into specifics mm -hmm. um i don't think i was a bad boy but so, you know i was around a bad crowd mm -hmm. and you know i did what i, I felt i had to do to not be a victim in the surroundings that I was in. So here I was, this privately schooled doctor's son, but like I was doing, as we say over here, I was doing a madness, I was doing bits, I was mm -hmm. out on the streets. So I did a few, you know, I made a few mistakes and was a guest of the queen for a little bit. <laughs> and um, after her excellency saw fit to allow me back into society, nobody was sure what was going to become of me people were worried that what if you know it's hard enough you know in inner city london staying out of trouble mm -hmm. when you're a young black man in in, in a deprived area right mm -hmm. but it becomes even harder when you have a record you know so when my parents found out that i was doing comedy it was like well at least he's not doing because i was studying at the same time you know mm -hmm. Um, cause I got back, I got back into education at 22, mm -hmm. 22, 23. And, um, that was within a week of being released and I started studying and 
you know, they were like, you know, at least he's doing something productive. So at first mm. they thought maybe it was just a stage or a mm. hobby that I was doing because I, I had the odd job here and there to mm. make ends meet, but I was focused on the stand-up, you know? And then over time, because like, even though now people are seeing overnight, overnight success, you, you know, and I know that over the course of the last 11, 12 years, there have been many successes. It, you know, it's been building gradually, been doing the different circuits. Like I was one of the few people that was doing a lot of success. So every here and there, I would have like a performance on TV or I get flown to another country. I do little bits here and there. My parents, like people would see that. Oh, look, actually he's doing something, you know, not, not too bad. It's, it's, you know, maybe one day he'll get a break. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the mentality that my family took. Because my family are reasonably liberal, mm -hmm. you know. So they're like, you know what, he's doing something. And then I got married about 11 years ago, 10, 11 years now we've been married. So it's like, on one hand, you've got the epi epitome of st stability. He's a married man, he's starting a family. But he does what for a living? <laughs> But because I've always been a character, my parents and family in general just thought, you know what? Leave him to his devices. As long as he's not getting himself into trouble or doing anything bad, if this is what he needs to do to stay grounded, let him do it. And that's the approach that my family took mm. to everything. Mm. <laughs> they had no choice. <laughs> so in, in a way, they, 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 they've been supportive. Yeah, in a way. I mean, now they're very supportive. But <laughs> <laughs> they're very supportive, nigga. <laughs> but like, you know, okay. it's one of those things where even within the circuit, you know, there are comedians that always had respect, but now I'm respected, you know? Yeah, like, 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 like Grandmaster, huh? Yeah, the, I am the Grandmaster. <laughs> and like human beings whether we like to admit it or not are very results-based creatures mm -hmm. so for example i could write a fantastic joke right and you think oh that joke's really good but if i do it 10 times and nobody laughs mm -hmm. it's not a great joke anymore no matter mm -hmm. how well written it is mm -hmm. whereas i could have a stupid joke that kills in every room like wow that bit was genius even if the joke itself doesn't make sense eventually we'll just convince ourselves oh mm -hmm. So now there's people who rewrite how they understand my career in their heads. Mm -hmm. So like when I was doing these gigs, even when I was doing really well, providing for my family and all this kind of stuff was, when is he going to leave that comedy stuff alone? Mm -hmm. And then now that like, oh, I'm on TV, I'm doing all this stuff. <gasps> you see, I always knew. I always, knew. <laughs> I always knew there was something special about that. Like, you'll be surprised how many of these fucking black promoters from the comedy circuit now, like, yeah, 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 obviously the dude's been doing his thing from day. Nah, suck your mom. You never used to book me. You never used to <laughs> Same thing with promoters on, on the on the on the mainstream circuit. You know, oh yeah, yeah, he's I we always thought there was something there. There was just something. <laughs> but I think now he's really stepped in and found his voice. No, I didn't find my voice. I found opportunity. That's mm. all it is. You know, I'm a Nigerian. We are a very dominant, very talented group of people. Mm -hmm. You know, we are a very, very, very talented group of people in anything that we do. Mm. But what we lack is opportunity. Mm. 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 You know? So, BGT happened. Uh, yeah. what, 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 
what how have you how have you found success how are you and you, you you're touching on some of it now how how has it been since you won bgt or not not win bgt but you you know you know what i mean it's, it's in my head that you won it and i have not a lot of people look at me like i won it which is yeah, yeah exactly but because i can't remember i honestly can't remember the other contestants i genuinely can't remember but that is that is that is another story but how, how are you finding how are you finding uh, you know success at that level because you received a lot of hate uh in the media you know i i saw it all and yeah I, I, yeah I, and at one point i thought how he's a strong man he will be able to cope he'll be able to deal with this yeah i'll tell you um so i was prepared for the hate in fact i calculated so we really have to really analyze the bgt thing for you to understand my perspective on it in that I went in with a plan and I executed. Because I knew the chances of me winning slip. The chances of getting a golden buzzer are on paper slip. But I have supreme confidence in what I can do. I know what my limitations are. And I know what I can do around them. And it's always been about timing. I always knew that as long as all things are equal and i'm given a platform even if the mainstream thinks that what i do does not work i will show them that it does mm -hmm. and from my audition to my semi-final to my final i thought to myself look there are things i could have some people say oh if you had not done this and that you would have won but if i had won by altering who i am then it's not me who's won because there's been many people who've been on Britain's Got Talent. Um, and like, for example, Robert White, who's a brilliant comic, but he did like material that was very clear, clean cut on BGT, but his stuff outside of that is very filthy. So it, it, it did not work for him. So he, he lost the fan base. Whereas I went on and I turned the whole thing on its head and, you know, overnight finally getting some of the uh, credit and exposure that I've worked so hard for that I deserve, right? So now I'm in a situation where, okay, I didn't win, but the opportunities that are coming to me, like I don't even talk about them openly. A lot of people like to talk about these. I, I want people to see when these things happen. And it's, it's great. It's a relief because it shows that I was right mm -hmm. all these years. You know, every time I hope every agent I ever wrote to that didn't sign me sees this and thinks, oh, <laughs> I hope, you know, that people send me messages. Oh, this comedy club is closing down. And I check and it's a comedy club that never let me play there. I'm like, oh, good, good. I'm here after them. <laughs> I'm being honest with you. So it's mm. like, you know, a lot of people um, who genuinely have believed in me, I'm happy that they've seen Mm -hmm. this happened mm -hmm. and for the people who doubted for the people who were disrespectful because this you know i'm i don't forgive and i don't forget mm -hmm. you know i remember everybody who was good to me and mm -hmm. i remember everyone who's ever been disrespectful mm -hmm. because the currency you pay to be on earth is the respect you give others mm -hmm. and you know as you said when you met me i'm a very guarded person so that that's comes from you know my experiences with people mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm life generally and you find that like that there's people out there that in the beginning were in a position to help mm -hmm. and did it mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden they want to be my friend and i'm yes. like but aren't you 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I believe in persistence. So, like, I'll give you an example. I remember Latif Lovejoy, I remember this because he was in the car. He was sitting in the back seat. Mm-hmm. So was Wayne D.B. Rollins. And there was a comedy promoter called Richard Naela. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Guy Never, Richard. Heard. Mm-hmm. Huh? Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Exactly. I'll show you why that's ironic. <laughs> we were in this car, started telling me Richard Nyla used to manage a comedian called Wayne D.B. Rollins. Mm-hmm. And Richard Nyla was telling me how, oh, I should change my name. Or I should shorten my name. And I'm like, no, like, you don't tell me. He's a Caribbean man. Okay. Obviously, he has the privilege of having a white presenting name, Richard mm-hmm. Nyla, mm-hmm. right? And I told him, my name means something. Mm-hmm. And there is a power in that name. When when my name is written in big lights, people who have names like mine will see it mm. and be inspired to do whatever it is that they are doing, which is happening now. Definitely. And the guy, oh, you know, that I should change it. I should think of a nickname like Nabs or something stupid. Nabs. <laughs> like, I, remember, I remember Latif Lovejoy, whose last name is not Lovejoy, right? Nigga, that is your name. I love him though, but like I'm only recounting what he was saying. No, no, Bill, you should listen. He knows what he's talking about. I was like, no, I'm not changing my fucking name. And you know what? After that day, every time I saw him at a gig, I would smash it naturally. I would call a member of the audience and I would ask them, "What's my name?" And they would say, "Now, Bill Abdurashid." I'm like, "Hey, Richard, you hear that?" Because he would say, "Oh, people aren't going to remember it." Okay, now let's do a Google search of Nabil Abdurashid. I want Naela. Let's see what comes up. So there have been many people like this, you know, many people who would not like that. I remember so many different situations where, like, I'll go to a gig, a person won't pay me properly. Then you move on to, like, the mainstream circuit. There were so many situations where I would do a comedy. Because people were like, oh, don't do BGT. It's not a fair competition. What competition in comedy is fair? How many times have we seen where people will compete and the best act won't win. Yeah. They'll give it to somebody else because they meet an agenda. Mm. They meet this, they meet that. So many times I've been in so many competitions where I stormed the room. Mm. I was the best. Mm. And when the person who won got named, the audience booed mm. or the audience like, what? And it just shows there's one competition. I remember Fumbi did a competition where he didn't win, but he was the audience favorite. Can you imagine that? Mm. The audience actually get to pick their winner mm. and the judges pick theirs. Mm. In an art form that is based on making the audience laugh, the guy the audience found funniest was not the winner. But we know that, we, we know that even when you go to gigs and you stomach and the audience love you, it doesn't mean you're going to get rebooked. doesn't mean you're going to get the <laughs> How many times? Look, do you know how hard? Do you know how long? You're just like me in that. Mm. You say you want the headline spot. First of all, you're lucky to even get 10. Mm. Then they tell you, oh, you can't open. Your set's a bit hard hitting to open. Mm. I'm like, okay, look, I remember telling a promoter who used to book me. I was like, look, give me the headline spot. Oh, you're not experienced enough to be the headline spot. I said, okay, I'm just going to keep making your headliners look stupid. Mm. Mm. And that's why we do. It got to a point where headliners, I'm not going to name them, but they know who they are. <laughs> they know who they are. These are people who were doing junglers for 15 years, 20 mm-hmm. years. When they heard that I'm on the bill, you'd see they would get a bit scared. They get a bit shook up because anytime they came on after me, they would die. I've been on a tour. This is years ago, right? Well, when I say years, just like three years ago, 
I was on a tour with not one, but two comedians that were on television and they had in their contract, <laughs> they had in their contract that they don't want to go on after me. Wow. Negotiating the tour. We were doing a tour for, for a third party that was paying for everything. Mm. And they said, look, we're happy to meet all, but please can you make sure that we don't go on after the deal. Watching this now, that thinks that maybe I'm just being arrogant. Mm. Turn up by a gig and follow me and see for yourself. Mm. Uh, maybe not now. It might, it might be hard, but this is this is even to comedians that have been going 25, 30 years. Mm. Most of them cannot follow me. It's a mm. proven fact. Mm. So it's like I will turn up after smashing a gig, and the headliner struggled. They still won't book me again. I remember going to a comedy club in Piccadilly Circus, a very big, well-known establishment. <laughs> And I was meant to be a 10 spot on a day, it was during Christmas, on a day that they had to throw out 18 people from the audience because they were so drunk and unruly. The compare died, the opening act died, the middle act died. I went on and I smashed it, then the headliner died. Did they call me back to give me a 20? No, they said they want to see me do another 10. Meanwhile, all their acts died. And that's the situation that many black comedians have. From me to Kane Brown, there's so many black comedians. You the same thing. We will smash a room, and the promoters will look for an excuse not to book you. Mm. you win a competition, and then the person writing the reviews, like, what's that guy's name from Choto, Steve Bennett, wrote a review about me and completely slated me. I said that I didn't go over well. Meanwhile, I, I had the strongest set of anybody in the room, mm. Mm. and the guy who won the competition. In fact, I'll say his name because he won't deny it, Ishan. Mm -hmm. After the competition, before the judges read their, um, before the judges read uh, their announcements, yeah, 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 Ishan came up to me and said, "Well done, Nabil, you've won it." And I was like, "No, I haven't won it. You have. Oh. They'll never let a guy like me win." Mm -hmm. And then they read the results, and he, they told him he won. And I said, "Yeah, there you go." And I walked off. Mm -hmm. And then later, Mike Manera, who used to manage the comedy pub, came up to me and said that I had you down as my winner. Mm. And I got into an argument with, uh, I think, Julia Chamberlain, who was mm. then the main person of Jonglers. Mm. And she didn't want me to win because I was already playing highlights or Jonglers or whatever the hell it was mm. she was managing at the time. Mm. But it's like, it's not my fault if within a year or two I'm doing these gigs. It means I work hard. Yeah. How yeah. are we going to mm. be competing? We're doing a comedy competition and you want to penalize me for being too good. Mm. And also, she then later wrote a review about me, which was untrue. Like, it didn't portray what happened in the room. Mm. And then there were jokes that she did not get. She thought I was talking about something that really happened <laughs> instead of doing my gig. Meanwhile, the whole audience got to and laughed. And I'm like, furthermore, why are you even writing a review about me when you owe me money? <laughs> <laughs> like, go manage your comedy club. Don't write reviews. So, like, this, this comedy thing... It's brutal, like, when it? I say it's brutal. Yeah. It's, a brutal it's brutal. And it's like, you know, when you come from the black circuit, it toughens you a bit mm. because obviously the, the way the black circuit is designed, it will make you a good performer. Mm. It will make you courageous. Mm. It might not make you a good writer. It might not make you very professional, <laughs> you know, because there's no open mic. Mm. But what it does do is it gives you a kind of confidence. Mm. I came on stage when we black comedians are confident. Look, you can still find the review on Choto. 
they described me as brash. Mm. But yeah. Phil, Phil, um, Nick Helm can go on stage and call the audience cunts. Mm. And it's, oh, cheeky, it's tongue in cheek. I come mm. on stage smiling, oh, what's going on? You're right, okay, let's do it. Oh, Nabil's brash. They want to mm. take the bass out of your voice. Mm. So is it, is that what you describe? What is that? Is that racism in the circuit? Or is what's it just, just pre prejudice? Or what is it? What, what, how would you describe it? Why is it much harder for black performers? to prove that they are funny. You know, think about it, right? From the perspective, most comedians in the UK are socially awkward white men who aren't particularly good looking. Comedy was the thing that made them cool mm. because they couldn't become lawyers. They couldn't become doctors. They couldn't become singers, you know? So what do they do? They, they, they're socially awkward white guys who are most likely still, especially in the era we live in now, still from privileged, liberal, middle-class homes. Mm. So what do they do? They do comedy. Now, as a black man, when you show up, they think, these guys already have boxing and basketball. <laughs> <laughs> What's this problem, right? And they don't like it. They don't like, you know, if, 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 you, know, if you turn up and you're a bricklayer, that's fine. If you turn mm. up and you're kicking a ball, that's okay even though they still fucking racially abuse you mm. on the football pitch. But when it comes to comedy, look at the roots of English comedy and tell me that there's not race. Remember that many of the same people booking us now used to book Roy Chubby Brown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They used to book, what's the other guy? What's the other racist guy? Ber Ber Bernard Manning. Ber Manning many yeah. of these venues used to book these guys. These guys used to go to Edinburgh. You know, all these places never had a problem with these people's comedy until after certain civil rights movements happened in the UK and there was outcry, then all of a sudden, but it's many of the same producers, it's many of the same directors. I mean, things are changing now, but for the last, you know, for a good number of years, it was many of the same people who thought those guys were funny mm. that were judging your comedy. Mm. So what does that tell you? Mm. And if you're an African, sorry, go on. Go on, go on, go on. If you're an African comedian, then there's a double issue because when I first started, same was with you, Caribbeans dominated black comedy. Mm. And most of the time, Africans were the butt of the joke. Mm. I was one of the few Africans that would come on there and didn't make fun of my own culture to fit in. I went on and I took on the Caribbean. I had things to say about them. Mm. And I talked, and also I talked about politics. I talked about social issues. Mm. I talked about history. That's I didn't. I did intelligent comedy. I, I felt there was more to being black mm. than jollof rice and jerk chicken and our parents beating us. <laughs> There's more to being black than good food and bad parenting. You know. Mm -hmm. So how many times did you see this when you went to a black gig? Yo, man, them. You know when you're in the rave, yeah, and you're grinding on the girl, yeah, and you're drinking it. I was like, is that all? Is that, you see like five of these guys go on stage doing the same thing. So it's like, I was an outsider on the black circuit mm. and I was an outsider on the mainstream. You know, so Britain's got talent. I'm rounding up to your question before you ask your next <laughs> Britain's got talent. That um, exposure it gave me, that mm. moment, from that moment I got the golden buzzer. Mm. I knew, I knew that things had changed for good. Mm. I knew that, look, even if I don't win, mm -hmm. 
this exposure, I can use it for something. Mm-hmm. And that's how it all began for me. That that's It's it's a lonely place because you can't talk to everybody about the things you've got coming up because mm-hmm. you don't know who's happy for you mm-hmm. and, and who wants to see your downfall. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, man, it's, it's so sweet. Mm. It's so, so sweet. Especially because if I didn't do it before lockdown, like, what, what would I be doing now? No, man, you, you, you know, I was talking to someone earlier on, not necessarily in terms of comedy, uh, just mm. in terms of the lockdown. How, for example, this year, um, past year, some people have had successes in their respective professions. People have made money whilst other people have suffered from the lockdown. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? So you, you know, and, and, and I just said, you, this, this is brilliant because I just find Britain at times very negative. Oh, there's a lockdown. But actually, yeah. people are making money. People are getting signed. Yep. People are, yep. are going on TV. You know what I'm saying? Let that inspire you. All of the above. Yeah. 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 So, far you don't, above. so far you don't. So far you're not inhibited with COVID. You're not fall, You haven't fallen ill. Yeah. You wake God up in me. the morning. Yeah, you wake up in the morning. You're alive and kicking. There's hope. So how can you milk the opportunity? Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's one of many reasons why I decided, look, I'm going to just do a podcast and, and invite yeah. the people I like and start to rather than wait for someone to Don't do Don't wait for someone. Exactly. Ah, Instead yeah. of waiting for someone. Yeah. And that's the problem. Too many of us comedians are waiting for somebody to just discover us from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And the reality yeah. is it's not going to happen like that. Yeah. You know, like, for example, I could sit down and be bitter and, mm. and say, oh, the game is this, like that, like that, like that. But I thought, you know what? Britain's Got Talent can be used as a cheat code. Mm. And you know what? You know, you know what? You know what's really sorry to interrupt. You know what's really interesting about the BGT thing. Many many years ago, when they started introducing comedians, a lot mm. of comedians basically said, "No, nah, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna compete with a dog. I'm not competing with a dancer. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not competing." It's almost like it's almost like when when uh, the lockdown happened and then Zoom came into the scene. People were saying, "Oh no, I'm not doing Zoom. Oh, no, no. I'm not no, doing Zoom. Now Zoom has changed." The landscape of comedy, even when live comedy comes back, Zoom will still be in existence. Yeah, people people are earning thousands of pounds in a day. People are earning thousands of pounds in a day doing Zoom gigs. Mm. And these guys are sitting down on uh, forums like Comedy Collective chatting shit. Mm. It's like, you know, I remember that thread that um, you started where you put up mm. my BGT thing and then people started looking for it. It's like, oh, it's rigged. Mm. I know somebody who knows it wasn't rigged. Mm. These people can never name the person they know mm. who was given or guaranteed a place in the final. Mm. They're just looking for excuses not to do it mm. because, like you, oh, they told me to do this and this and this and this joke. Mm. If you are talented mm. and you believe in what you do, then you should have the confidence to say, No, I'm mm. doing this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like all these guys make, like, think about this, right? Edinburgh, yeah, the festival isn't just comedy. Mm. There is no difference between Edinburgh and Britain's Got Talent. Absolutely none. There are dancing dogs in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. There are people <laughs> who strip in Edinburgh. Yeah. There are people with 95% of comedy, comedy shows in Edinburgh are sob stories. Mm where they discover themselves at the end. It's all, the only difference is BGT doesn't cost you 10,000 pounds. You don't need to send out somebody to fly for you Mm. or pay extortionate amounts of rent for some dilapidated flat somewhere in Scotland. Mm. 
You don't have to do all of that. And you have higher chances of being seen by TV producers mm. and becoming a household name mm. on BGT than you do doing Edinburgh. Mm. Because people go to Edinburgh to watch specific acts. The producers already know who they want to go and see mm. because those people have been making noise all year. Yeah, yeah. This some open mic who's only been going for nine months thinks that they're shit comedy that they're going to go and do you know, they're terrible, terrible one-liners or whatever crap comedy they've been doing for nine months, can't even write a proper joke. They think that they're just going to go to some empty bar somewhere in Glasgow and out of hundreds of people, thousands of people, some hungover, maybe severely depressed, yeah, critic is going to see them and say something nice about them. And then the BBC, Netflix, NBC <laughs> Awards... <laughs> Did you see how insane that sounds? Yeah, yeah. You know, these yeah. people who say, oh, they would never do Britain's Got Talent. They shouldn't go to Edinburgh because it's it's worse. Mm, yeah, definitely. By their logic. Yeah, yeah. Because you're competing. There's people who do Edinburgh shows and it's like they come up with more and more bizarre ideas every day. Mm. They'll do it naked, upside down. <laughs> away from, you know, they look for all these things to circumvent being funny mm. as a stand-up. And mm. then here's another thing. Why is it comedians saying, oh, I'm not going to compete against the dog? This year that I did BGT, I had the dancer saying, oh, no, I have to compete against the comedian. Mm. I was backstage. They had, they had props. Mm. They had dogs. Mm. They had background dancers. But when I turned up, even at the semifinal, I had everybody shook. Mm. Everybody was scared that they had mm. to go up against me. Mm. I, you know, I'm very proud. Like this, this is not me being arrogant. Comedy is powerful. Mm. Comedy is powerful because at the end of the day, nobody leaves their house to go and see a dancing dog. Mm. There's, there's not dancing dog clubs around the streets mm. in England. There's not magic clubs around the streets in England, mm. but there are comedy clubs in every single borough in the UK. Mm. Mm. So why are people scared to go and do comedy on a show? Because they're competing against other arts. If there's a stage, a microphone, and an audience understands the language you speak, if you're truly good at what you do, unless mm. maybe you're, what you do is dirty, which is, okay, fine. That's a good reason not to do it. Mm. But if, you're, if you truly are good at what you do, you should be able to take your art form. Just like a martial art, if your martial art works, mm. you should be able to use it to fight anybody, mm. right? Mm. So if, if your art form works, you know, if a violinist can go on British Got Talent, mm. then why can't some guy who tells jokes at pubs do it? Mm. Mm. I don't understand. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute. Mm. So tell me, yeah, because we have the, the question was on uh, yeah on BGT and successes and challenges. What's been happening since BGT? I know, I know for a fact that you're going on tour. Boy, I mean, so since BGT happened, um, you know, I've I've got myself a decent agent, which helps. Um, you know, I've got like um I'm in meetings with people for projects that I can't talk about. Yeah. But like multiple multiple projects. So even if only one lands this year, it's huge. I've already Excellent. recorded one TV show for a major um, major channel. Oh, it's nice. a major TV show that will be out later this year. Uh, I'm about to perform at... Um, the first uh, live taped stand-up show uh, of the year mm -hmm. for the BBC. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically like a powered down live at the Apollo, to be honest. Okay. Less audience members. Um, and it's it's their attempt at just trying to kickstart comedy this year and to help mm-hmm. a lot of comedians as in June, mm-hmm. things will be opening back up. So I'm going to be playing a big part in that. I'm going to be performing, um, you know. So there's that. I'm currently just waiting back on offers for like a number of television shows. Like you said, I've got my tour coming out. So yeah, there's, there's a number of projects that I've got at the same time being um, developed and worked on. And, you know, I'm, I've never been in this. I mean, apart from that, just, you know, I'm working. I've been wor- working from home, like I said, with the amount of like, for me personally, uh, amount of corporates and things that I'm doing now that were not accessible to me before BGT. Um, my fan base uh, following has grown overnight, like ridiculously. And I still get recognized in the streets. And, you know, to be honest with you, I say this, if there was no lockdown, I don't know what would have happened. I don't know the amount of things I probably missed out on mm. um, because of the lockdown, you know, I don't want to think about. But it's it's been bonkers my whole life. Like, I'm not, at the moment, I wouldn't even class myself as, as a club comic anymore. Mm. I'm not mm. a circuit comic anymore. Mm. You know, so, and I, I love, I love the clubs, but, you know, the way I see, it, if you can't build your own audience right now, it's it's um, it's tough. Difficult. It's difficult. It's tough. It's tough. And now there's less clubs. Yeah, you know? yeah. There, there will be less clubs, and that's why, like I said, opportunities for those comics who have been able to build their fan base. They've been able to keep in touch with their fan base throughout the lockdown. Whatever they're doing to 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 have that engagement. Um. Mm. That is that is uh, fantastic. What does your wife? What does your because your wife has been? I you, I met your wife and I I remember the good old days when uh, I performed at uh, your club with Ola. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so she's she's been there. She has seen the pain. What what what? How does she feel now? Oh, she's the happiest woman in the world right now. <laughs> oh, she's... I mean, to put it as in, you you, you are a married man yourself, yeah. you're a family man, which is mm. why one of the many reasons why I respect you. Because, you know, again, that's not common in our industry. Most mm. most male comedians are man-children. You know, mm. they don't have any responsibilities. Mm. So, you know what, you know what I mean? When your wife is, my wife has always been proud of my work. Mm-hmm. She's always been proud of stand-up. But, like, now it's on a different level. And, I mean... Right now, people will not understand what I'm saying, but in a couple of weeks, they will. Mm. And, you know, it's just it's just a very nice feeling, you know, because like you said, my wife, is, 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 is a, this is the proper wife story. My wife was there at the start mm. when, you know, man would get a bus to a, some long, ridiculous place mm. in the middle of the night to perform mm. and come back. And, you know, she, my wife, me and my wife were at uni, you mm. know, so she's seen the whole grind and me developing as a man mm. and so on. And she's had my back since then mm. from, you know, even things like the issues that we go through on the circuit mm-hmm. with promoters, with mm-hmm. other comedians. She's been there when competitions that I had won, you know, did not go, you know, I wasn't given mm. victory. She's been, she's seen the disappointment in my face when I've emailed agents and they don't respond. 
So, you know, now it's like some of the opportunities, I wish I could go into detail about them. No, no, don't, don't have to. Yeah, you don't yeah have I know. To. But it's like, you know, some of the things that I've had the opportunity just to do, like, it, you know, she, tears of joy, you know, it, it's Excellent. something, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, the fact that I shared that moment with my kids, because mm. both my daughters were on my, um, on, on the episode that showed uh, my audition. Yeah. Both my kids were on that. Mm. you know so it, it's it's an amazing feeling because they're gonna grow up and look back at that and see how it all started mm. this portion of my career mm. and so yeah my, my wife has been there my wife used to come to every single show until we had our first kid mm. she used to come to every single show and even now she's still probably the first person i go to when i have an idea to get her mm. opinion mm-hmm. so as a man you know knowing that now you can start to give her some of the things that she deserves mm-hmm. uh, off the back of court. Cause I mean, I've always looked after my family, but now mm-hmm. you, I can start to think about things that weren't a possibility before. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a great feeling and it doesn't matter. You know, I think comedy, the, the thing I would like in comedy too is boxing. I think mm-hmm. comedy and boxing are very similar because mm-hmm. it's unforgiving. It's mm-hmm. only you on that stage. There's no team. <laughs> And I'd be the best, but you mm. don't get an opportunity. Like there's many great boxers that don't get a chance mm-hmm. to fight for the championship or something. Mm. So I just feel like now finally I've reached that level where if I'm not a champion, at least I'm a contender, you know, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm making the kind of moves now that I've always known I could be making and I'd be in a good position to, you know. Mm. And it, even my agent said to me that it's like you're battle hardened already. You're already, because my agent is, is someone that doesn't take people on every year mm-hmm. you know some agents they just take a new person my agent can go for five years and not sign anybody yeah um very very picky and she was like you know and she she said that normally when we sign someone they have to go through a whole process of us like trying to build them up and develop them but like you're already yeah a veteran well, you, you, <laughs> you, know? you 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 planted the seeds very many many years ago so you know yeah look how like, hard yeah. work hard work man big mentality just <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember I, I remember your i remember your wife very well at one point i even thought when you booked me it wasn't actually you who booked me it was your wife who booked me <laughs> yeah yeah she knows comedy she, she knows comedy. Remember, she used to do the tickets. Yeah, yes, she used yes. To do the yeah, tickets at yeah, comedy, man. Comedy yeah, club. yeah. It was yeah. So it's been it's been yeah. Yeah, I met um Jeff Schumann recently, and he spoke very highly of you. Um, what yeah. what is what is your what is your philosophy of comedy? What what you know? I know you said your inspiration has been Richard Pryor. What 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 is what what's your philosophy on comedy? So for me, I think the highest level of comedy is when you can actually go on stage and not care and just do you and express yourself and be you. Um, your, your, your persona on stage needs to be like an extension of your true self. So it gets to a point where if somebody, nobody can take your joke because it doesn't, it's not the same when you're, you're not the one doing it. Mm. And I think my mindset for comedy is Again, because I like boxing so much, it's my, the sport I've been involved in since I was a kid. Um, I think that I have a very attack mentality when it comes to comedy. I, I, I believe in attacking the challenges. I believe in owning the stage. I believe in being competitive. Like, 
you know, we all have egos. And my mentality is I'm better than all these people on TV. That's I've always had that mentality. I've always said that the only thing. So when people see me, it's like, oh, there's this innate thing that people do where they see somebody who has more money and just assume, oh, this guy is better than me. No, he's not better than you. He was fortunate enough to find the opportunity. He networked. Maybe he was lucky. Well, there's no such thing as luck. He was in the right place at the right time. And those opportunities worked out for him. If you had seen Michael McIntyre a year before the year he blew, you'd say he was just a good comedian in the clubs. Mm. He's Now, because he's a multimillionaire, he's a legend. I'm not saying he's not good at what he does, but people's mentality, and, and that's the frustrating thing about comedy, when you tell a civilian that you do stand-up, they're like, oh, oh you're a professional. They always ask, oh, is that how you pay your bills? <laughs> they're shocked. They're shocked. <laughs> if you're mm-hmm. not on TV, mm-hmm. they, it's basically saying, if you're not, basically mm. implying that if you're not on TV, mm. you can't be very good. Mm. You know, so it's 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 a comedy thing. It's, it's it's nice to finally have that. Yeah, well, I am on TV, bitch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, even it's not all the time, but mm. it, it's nice to finally achieve some. You know, when you love something. So my mentality has always been: I'm just as good. Mm-hmm. All I need to do is work hard and be consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been competitive. So, like for example, some comedians when a certain comedian is on before them, mm-hmm. they start to get worried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I see that as a challenge. Mm-hmm. I like it when the guy that was on before me smashes. Because I'm like, oh, now I have to go on and do better than that. Yeah, definitely. That's the mentality I have. Mm-hmm. I see it as a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I found, you know, a lot of comics these days, this Instagram generation, they can't handle challenges. They don't mm-hmm. like it. <laughs> they can't handle being in an environment that they can't control or edit or manipulate. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I, my mentality for comedy, my, my philosophy is work hard, mm-hmm. understand yourself, understand your limitations and test them. Mm-hmm. Get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And also Nabil Abdurashid is the best. Mm. Oh, whoa, you want that to remember? You have to dominate, bro. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. Yeah, Jeff Schumann, because Jeff Schumann was the first person to proper believe in me. Mm, mm. No, he spoke. He spoke really highly of you. He, you yeah, know, you should. You should try and when you have time, try and listen to the podcast. He spoke about. I did. I did. I did about um, Dame Baptist or I Styler. Quite a number of black. Um, These are all my friends or people that I came up with. So good. You know, there was something about that era of comedy that just people are just catching up with it now. Mm. But what I like is that the people who are true to the game, Mm. the people who stuck around, Mm. the people who actually loved comedy and worked hard, they've they're all starting to get their due now. Mm. Babatunde is on TV. You know, the 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 Ori Stylers, mm. the Dame Baptiste, even Slim. Eventually, if you work hard, yeah, you pay your dues, mm. you'll get there. Mm. You know, and I remember, you know, I was watching an interview with Jeff, and you know, I remember something that really struck a chord with me because, like, there's very few comics that I've looked up to and that have really been that mentor figure for me. Mm-hmm. Jeff is one of them. I remember um, someone gave me his number and I called him. And this was after I did my first ever gig, which went badly. Mm. I did a second gig, which was Kojo's Comedy Funhouse. Mm-hmm. That went well. Mm-hmm. And then somebody gave me a choice of two phone numbers. 
One was John Simmons and the other was Jeff Schumann. He gave me both numbers. It was, um, yeah, they gave me both numbers. Hmm. I chose to call Jeff first. When I called Jeff on the phone, you know how he's very blunt. Hmm. Uh, all right. Uh, hmm. I'll <laughs> if I like you, I'll book you again. If hmm. I don't, I won't. You know, the typical hmm. Jeff. Hmm. He booked me. He come down, Albertine's Wine Bar, Richard Blackwood's headliner. Let me just hang up. On. <laughs> Mm. So I turned, mm. I turned up uh, Albertine's, <laughs> Albertine's wife, but I remember that's the first time you met Jeff. I ever met Ola. Okay, okay. So I turned up at Albertine's wine bar, right? And I remember <laughs> I was meant to do five minutes and I did 32, right? <laughs> and it was in this Caribbean wine bar in, in mm. Lewisham, right? Yeah. And there's all these like Jamaicans and shit. They're rolling on the floor laughing. Ah, bombok like the boy funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being backstage with Ola mm. before uh, the show started. And I remember like Wayne Dibby Rollins mm. walked into the dressing room and I'd never seen him before. Mm. I didn't know who he was. Mm. So this guy sits down again, proper like yard man, you know, like Jamaican. Yo, me tell him something, you know, about this industry, you know, car. You know, can't left man for fuck with you, you know. Yo, big man, pass me that bra. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what the fuck, what? Yo, yo. Slide over the lipstick, yeah, so. And he starts putting lipstick on his mouth. I'm like, what? Yo, yo, yo. And me, hand over the panty liner, man. And then the guy starts putting on the panty liners. Mini skirt. Me and all I was just looking at this guy like, ah, mugwe. What is, is this, this what I do to somebody? The <laughs> wig And the guys like, you can't let them fuck with you. Understand, young lion? You can't let them fuck with you. You know, you have to hold your pride. You know, you have to, you have to proud of yourself and just know say like them call me gay, but me not gay. <laughs> And he had he proper like slut bombed a little bit just to make sure that he wasn't chafing, he was fixing yeah. his underwear. Oh, yeah. on his, anyway, bless up, bless up, and he fist busts, bumps all <laughs> of us, puts on his stiletto heels. <laughs> and me and all I just looked at each other like shit, this is what this comedy game can do to you. Yeah. Anyway, after that show, Jeff was so impressed by what he saw. He told me, like, listen to Bill. You're gonna make it. Mm. They're gonna hate you. People are gonna be jealous. People are gonna backstab because you have something. And he told me the last time I saw a comedian with your level of talent, it was a guy called Toju. Mm. And at that time, I didn't know who Toju was. Mm. He said the last comedian I've seen with your level of skill was Toju. I remember Richard Blackwood even said to me, "Yeah, bro, like you're." different you're gonna you're mm. gonna you're gonna do something but you need to stay true to yourself mm. and you know after that point in time anytime Jeff Schumann had a show he would take me with him and whenever he couldn't make it to a show he would send me to do his spot and when he went on tour he took me with him and he you know he kind of showed me the ropes and stuff and he told me about his experiences mm. and mm. how I could learn from them and you mm. know because me and Jeff are very similar in certain ways mm. you know he's very much no nonsense outspoken very proud of his roots mm. you know and um 
you know, we both have that militant mentality when it comes mm. to life in general. Mm. You know, people know that you don't play with Jeff Schumann. Mm. And I like to think people know that you don't play with me. Mm. So, you know, I looked up to him. And before I went on Brins Got Talent, he was the first person outside of my family that I called. Mm. And I asked him, Jeff, do you think I should do this? And he mm. said, Nabil, there's no stage mm. this country or abroad that you cannot own. You mm. are amazing at what you do mm. and you're going to smash Brins Got Talent. And that's it. That was, I said, okay, if Jeff says that it's all right for me to do, you can do it. I'll do it. Yes, sir. And, you know, he he introduced me to John Simmett. John Simmett gave me my first ever international gig. Shout out to John Simmett. Through that crowd of people I met, people I missed to see. Mr. C, um, you know, even though we don't always agree on everything, he, he was another person that, you know, gave me respect, mm -hmm. which different kind of respect from my peers when I was growing mm -hmm. up. Uh, coming up in comedy, you know, to a lesser extent, there were guys like, you know, Rudy Liquid that were always there. There were, there were different people who always, like, paid respect yeah. in one way um, to different varying degrees, you mm -hmm. know. But it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting time to come up because it was when the black comedy circuit was falling apart. Because yeah. I don't believe there's a black circuit anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't call that a circuit because... Mm -hmm. They don't work together anymore. There's mm. not now what you've got is rave promoters doing independent stuff, yeah. you know. But them times when we had the Sunday show, mm. you got jokes, Kojo's mm. comedy house, mm. oh sugar. There were like there was like nine or ten different black promotions every week, mm. and then another like nine or ten that were every couple of months. Mm. There was LOL show, big up the Watson brothers. Mm. They used to do the LOL show. There were two guys from Northwest London mm. and they did shows across the country and they took me with them. Then there was a guy called Altaf from Desi Central mm. who then founded something called Gobo, you know, so he was doing mm. the so Kobo, comedy mm. of black origin. So like mm. these are all people, you know, that then then from there, like I got connected to people like Regilio in Holland who did mm. something called The Bounce Comedy. Mm. It was a nice time to be a black comic, but... Mm. Those times didn't last because over time people got greedy, people mm. stopped working with each other, mm. and and also people kept on fucking fighting at venues and things like that. <laughs> look, 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 I have one question for you because you spoke yeah. about. Um, I was going to talk to you about uh, African comedy. You so you know we got African Caribbeans, yeah, and mm. it is obvious. Even when I arrived in this country, the first person I saw perform wasn't Lenny Henry; it was Felix Dexter when I went to Hackney Empire and he was, you know, Nigerian accountant. And I always didn't understand why there weren't that many, and I'm not suggesting he was African, but where, where were all the African comics? And then we saw the likes of Gina Yashere. And then it, it was always predominantly dominated by Caribbeans. And then- Caribbeans. Yeah. And remember, it wasn't just in comedy, it was music as well. Yeah, yeah. It was everything. The African experience was still marginalized. Because mm. remember, we came here and like in all industries, in all walks of life, that, you know, obviously our skin is black and the Caribbean people are our brothers. Mm. Never, never, mm -hmm. I never deny that or doubt it. Mm. But unfortunately, that generation, there was a certain, there was a certain ignorance. There mm. was a certain backwardsness about, and, and I don't want to call it rivalry, but ignorance mm. 
about in the culture where mm. even in schools our Afri- like i can't count how many times i had to punch up jamaicans in college mm. because of the stuff they would say mm. about sorry Mm. I can't count how many like times we get into fist fights in college and stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, with Caribbean um, students that had shit to say about Africans because they were led to believe that they were superior to Africans. Because mm. like, obviously we're very different. Our names don't, most of us don't have English names. So they would have names that were readable and pronounceable to teachers. We didn't. So from there we get made fun of mm-hmm. our food didn't have the same names like at least their their foods had names in english our food looked different smelled different we were different mm. so we were other and then also the african experience here in the uk we weren't pushed in nigeria arts are very big mm-hmm. but nigerians who have come here to the uk for the most part initially were more academics yeah. so like what yeah. we were making moves in terms of business in terms of maybe getting certain types of jobs with tfl mm. or mm. different councils we weren't heavily involved in entertainment because mm. our parents thought the entertainment was something our our peers thought the entertainment wasn't something for us mm. they were like mm. no you need to find something steady and that makes sense because as immigrants coming here to the uk remember we were we came here after jamaicans did mm. and the other caribbeans we came here after they did so they were already established. So the mentality was establish yourself first. And I think mm. that kind of played off in us not mm. making our music public and people mm. not understanding our slang and mm. our kind of comedy. Mm. And then you had all these kids being raised here in the UK who were not necessarily proud of who they were because their parents didn't teach them to be. Mm. Right. And it's only now from people trailblazing that all of a sudden, it's different. Like our music now is more popular than Jamaican music. Mm-hmm. It is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's always been good. It's just that we never got given the platform. The platform. Yeah. Because culturally we were very different. Even geographically, we're further away from England than Jamaica is. We're further away from America than Jamaica is and the other Caribbean islands. So like their culture had a direct influence on American culture, which had a direct influence on UK culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they have Irish last names, a lot of them. They, it was easier for them to blend in than it was, it was for us. Mm. But once we got our foot through the door, as with all things, look, mm. we, you know, we start to take over. We start to do well because, mm. as you know, Nigerian, they carry last. Nigerian, carry we last have a, <laughs> when a Nigerian decides to do something, we're good at it. Yeah. As simple as that. When we decide mm. to do something, because we're competitive people, mm-hmm. we don't want mm. to be... The tail, we want to be the head. The head, yeah. You know, so... Yeah, go on. on. So with black comedy, the first comedian I saw perform live that made me think I want to do this was Eddie Caddy. Eddie Caddy at a show called The Jump Off. He came Mm. on, what I liked him was, he came on dancing to Makosa, Premier Mm. Gao, Magic Mm. System. Mm. Yeah, he came on doing this traditional, Mm. you Mm. know, Francophone African Mm. dance. Mm. 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 he got the people worked up and he did comedy and he wasn't taking the piss out of his culture he was Mm. taking pride in it Mm. you know and i was like even though i don't do exactly what he does i do something different i make people proud in a more revolutionary way i think the my my path to my kind of comedy is no different from eddie caddy's in terms of the principle behind it that i won't black people first i said africans but now black people and muslims i want 
the people to take pride in their, their identity and who they mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And I think comedy is a great vehicle to do that. And, you know, I feel like there's no Richard Pryors in the UK. There's no Chappelle's. I think this generation of black comedians will produce the Richard Pryor, will, will produce the Dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. will produce the Chris Rock. But I think it was very important for Africans to come through. Because remember before, we were the butt of all the jokes. Africans yeah. have dry food. <laughs> remember that WhatsApp group we were in? Yes. Oh, oh, I couldn't survive it after a while. No. <laughs> there was just that mentality. I remember you, you know what it was like when we first came through. Many yeah. of the Caribbean comics did not want to help. Mm. Mm. They didn't mm. want to help. They hate. It's okay to say they hated on us. Mm. But now those same guys, many of the same guys that didn't like Africans, they're wearing African hats. You know, they're wearing the shikis and all that kind of stuff. But I'm like, where was all of this? Mm. I, I remember I was sick to my stomach because, you know, a comedian we both know, I remember going to a show. I'm sorry, I know that. I've answered, I've been on this question, but this is an important point I want to make. No, 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 we've got time, we've got that freedom of speech. I was preparing for my audition for Britain's No Talent. And I went to Ori Styler's Box Park gig. Mm. And a comedian, he had a few drinks, and this is a guy that I used to respect, I used to look up to, even though there have been some things he'd done mm-hmm. that made me look at him a certain kind of way, but I still had that respect for him because, mm. you know, <laughs> He started doing some stuff about Brexit and it wasn't comedy anymore. It was, he was just venting frustration about mm. fucking Africans coming over here now. And we're taking, you know, that's why, to be honest with you, I, 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 you know, I'm like, come here. I mean, I'm not as articulate as you in the bill, but you know, these <laughs> Africans, they come here and like, you know, their names, they need to go back. That's why I voted for Brexit. Good, good impression of what I'm talking about. Anyway, this guy was started doing all this anti-African, anti-Muslim shit on stage, and this is a guy that likes to pretend he's a black man as well. And I'm like, you mean to tell me at your big age this mentality hasn't died? And then after that, he proceeded to do some really rapey stuff. Like there was a woman sitting in front. I remember looking at him, looking at and saying, "Oh, you're right, there, darling. Yeah, you're right." There. <laughs> I bet you look good with your ankles by your ears. And this girl was young enough to be his daughter. And it was in a small room. So literally, I would say tops, there was 13 or 14 of us. And this was when Ori's gig was not very established. Mm. So the head of all events for Box Park was in the room on that day. So like this guy who once ran a small gig himself, if we did that at his gig, he'd be upset. Mm. But here this guy is, this is a comedy anymore, this is sexual harassment. And he's saying all this really, you know, there was a gay guy in the room, like, oh, you know, come here with the guys, you know, and I call, and I'm sorry, I don't do that. I, I, I called him, and then he called the guy a Caribbean slur for, and, and I'm like, where is the comedy? There was no punchline, mm. you know? And all the old attitudes that a lot of these comics had when we first started doing comedy, he just regurgitated them, regurgitated them in 2020. And after he did that, I just thought, I'm done with this guy. Man. Yeah. I'm done. And, I, and the thing is, I believe you've probably been in communication with this person too. Mm-hmm. And I've probably seen a similar kind of ignorance. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, these guys do this kind of stuff. And then tomorrow we'll complain that black people don't support each other. Each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
Look, this has been this has been fantastic. We haven't this is just half of half of your life, really, because you've broken the record, Grandmaster. Normally, uh the beauty of this podcast is out of conversation. Some people don't last more than 45 minutes. You've been going on for well over an hour, and like yeah. so, it's great. <laughs> do you still have more time to talk? Or, or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's okay, well, let's let's continue to do this. Um I where do you see yourself? Are you the are you the Dave Chappelle of Britain? Are you the <laughs> Is that where you're aiming? <laughs> you're not gonna get me to say that. I'll tell you if I'm aiming if I ever make the same money. Yeah. Listen, um, what I'll say is this, right? Ambition is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you just have to reach for the stars and take whoever comes. So no, I'm not saying that I am the Dave Chappelle or that I am the Richard Pryor. What I'm saying is I would like to try and do here mm. what those guys did over there. Mm. I would like to try and talk about the city because I've noticed that here in England, they love to watch Dave Chappelle mm. and talk about things Dave Chappelle is talking about. Mm-hmm. When a black man here in England does it, they get scared, mm. Mm. you know? And that's like, I, I put my money where my mouth is. I went on mainstream television mm. and you saw the kind of stuff I decided to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I proved there's an audience for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope that I can continue down that path mm. and, you know, show people, like, make my own lane. I'm not here to be, I, I'm, I'm not here to be, you know, Lenny Henry was a legend mm. in his day. Mm. I'm not here to be Lenny Henry, you know. Mm. He was non-threatening. Mm. Well, I'm not saying I want to be threatening, but I'm not going to compromise what I want to talk about mm. for the sake of a commercial Mm. A, a bit of commercial success um and where i'm different is you know like the things i represent are different you know mm. i'm not on here talking about smoking weed taking mm. drugs or sexual immorality or anything like that mm. but i am talking about our experiences in this country and in the world mm. um, because you know it's the last bastion of, of free speech it's what we should be doing mm. no you so think, you, I think, would... you think britain is ready you think britain is ready for you only one way to find out <laughs> From your tour, I, su- I suppose. Because the BGs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities opening up this year mm-hmm. for me. And, um, you know, there'll be a good testing ground mm-hmm. for my belief in myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, you know, we don't all have to be trailblazers or whatever, but I don't believe in half measures. I want to really, I've be, I was a gigging comic. I was a circuit comedian for so many years. Yeah. Right. I, I want to try something else now. I'm, I'm mainstream now, or at least I'm, I'm about to be. Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to. I want to attack that. Mm-hmm. You know, because I remember watching the Felix Dexter um, documentary, mm-hmm. and I remember saying, you know, Ava Vidal. I said, oh, you know, if you work hard, they can never ignore you. And Ava was like, no, dummy, watch the documentary again. Mm-hmm. The whole point is, if these people can ignore you, they will. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me. I was like, wow, imagine putting all this time and energy into this art form. Mm. And then they only decide to let me on television after I die. Mm. You know, and some people say, oh, you know, why do you need to be on television? Why can't we do our own thing? My taxes pay for that shit. Like, I'm, I'm a part of this. This is my country. I mean, mm. I'm British mm. as well as Nigerian. Yeah, and yeah. I have a right to be on TV, you know? Mm. So... I I want to I want to try and open up real conversations 
mm-hmm. uh, in, in mainstream comedy, mm-hmm. in mainstream media. And mm-hmm. I believe now is the time. If there was ever a time that this was possible, it's now. Don't you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. I, yeah, you know, you know, I'm proud of you. Uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's fantastic to watch your, watch your journey. And, you know, I want to wish you continued success. No pressure. Continued success. <laughs> yeah, continued success. But uh, look, this has been, this has been brilliant. Uh, and uh, I hope my listeners enjoy. Uh, I have to always remind myself that Nabil, is a BGT finalist. He did not win it, but even my head, I just believe he did. Um, look out, he's got. Where can people find you? Uh, your social handle and you know your tour in particular. So it's Nabil Abdurashid on everything. So you will find me as man like Nabs, obviously on um, Instagram. Mm-hmm. But like just just one search of Nabil Abdurashid on the internet, um, and you will find my Twitter, my YouTube. My Instagram, my Facebook, everything, um, and I'm me everywhere. So when I, when I was Google, you won't believe this, but I'm sure you probably know. But I was, I was when I googled you and I was checking your Wikipedia. Uh, that's how I know that you know you're on your way. Similar searches: Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle. So that's 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 that that has to be a good thing. Now you're 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 you're, you're being humble. <laughs> I've never seen you be so humble. <laughs> I know, right? I'm, I'm normally like an arrogant. <laughs> but look, thank you for your time. Uh, greetings to your wife and your lovely family. It's been it, it's been fantastic talking to you. And uh, folks, that's the end. We could go on forever, but you know, I am hungry. Uh, I'm getting old. I have to eat before eight o'clock. So it's it's gone past eight o'clock. Well, thank you, Nabil. Thank you so much. God bless you. Okay, bye.